From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. This week, we have a conversation with anthropologist Andrew Flax, who approaches the microbiome from more than one perspective. We meet the chef for North Carolina's governor, plus a simple pot roast recipe from Susan Mintert. That's all just ahead, so stay with us. When the governor and first lady of North Carolina had an opening for a chef at the state's executive mansion, they wanted more than the promise of a great meal. In Ryan McGuire, they found an advocate for farm-to-table eating, improved child nutrition, and the promise of food as a connector. Josephine McRobbie spoke with Chef McGuire at a local urban farm. North Carolina is ranked one of the most food-insecure states in the nation, with children and seniors even more vulnerable to malnutrition and scarcity of resources. The state's governor, Roy Cooper, and First Lady Kristen Cooper have been involved with organizations like No Child Hungry since the beginning of Cooper's administration, and they have a unique ally in the chef at the state's executive mansion. I'm standing with Chef Ryan McGuire at Raleigh City Farm, where the chef often puts on community-centered events. Recently, it was teaching cooking and gardening to the local Salvation Army after-school program. We did some uh, some knife skills and, and safety practices, and um, we, we had uh, some produce that was uh, given from the farm here that we utilized in the cooking classes. At the executive mansion, Chef McGuire manages a staff who do everything from tending a garden to working front of house for events to running the kitchen. I love... Um, exploring different uh, cuisine, types of cuisine, so I, I often try, try to fit some, you know, different flavors in there. And the governor's been great. He's very open-minded, and so he, he has allowed me pretty much free reign on what I like to cook, which is fantastic. I, 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 like, I like that freedom. We're the people's house, as the governor calls it, so we have events that happen there with nonprofits and, and other organizations that come in. Chef McGuire also represents his role around the region. Last summer, he visited the local food bank with the First Lady as part of the Stop Summer Hunger Initiative, where he did a recipe demonstration that used only food bank ingredients to make an Asian-inspired meatball dish. In 2019, he was a participant in Durham Bowls, where local chefs team up with school cafeteria workers to develop fresh recipes for the public school system. Chef McGuire grew up in the neighborhood-centric Buffalo, New York, the grandson of a Sicilian immigrant. You go to one part of town for your Italian sausage, you go to one part of town for your Polish sausage, your, your, your kibasa and your, um, your pierogies, and you know, you have these little pockets of, of uh, people that live in these different, different areas. His most memorable food experiences were the ones that were challenging on the palate, like eating pasta with sardines as part of the St. Joseph's Catholic feast day. But later he learned in his child nutrition work that it can take a person a dozen times eating a food to develop a taste for it, and that it can be worth the struggle. It always brings me back to, to you know, grandma's house or something if I have a, a taste of that sauce that she would make. So it's something that I feel is extremely important to continue because it's the only th- real thing I can grasp onto, you know, and try to pass on to my family. So um, <clears throat> we, had a, we had a really nice St. Joseph's Day last year with friends and family. Um, and I hope to do that, continue that uh, tradition. I got into the culinary world sort of by mistake, just because it's usually one of the first jobs you can get as a, as a teenager. And I started washing dishes at a 
Kentucky Fried Chicken. Later, Chef McGuire ended up getting his first real restaurant gig when he was called back by accident for a job interview. And the guy thought I was someone else. <laughs> uh, so they called me in. Um, and since I was there, they kind of put me to work. And I started working at this really neat bistro and started learning more about, about cooking from the couple of the chefs that were there. After completing culinary school and working in restaurants in Manhattan, he took a job as a cook and educator at the Virgin Island Sustainable Farms Institute. The types of fruits and vegetables that they, that you can grow there was phenomenal. You know, we had uh, pineapples and different types of bananas and um, all, all kinds of really neat fruits. You know, of course, mango and avocados and um, star fruit, carambola. Um, there was a soursop. It was just, it was pretty cool. In North Carolina, he worked at Watts Grocery, an award-winning farm-to-table restaurant owned by Amy Turnquist. You know, she would go down to the Carborough Farmer's Market and just stuff her car with full of vegetables and bring it back to the restaurant. We didn't even really need it. I think she just she just loved uh, supporting the farmers there and, you know, and telling us to try to find a use for it. And um, so it was neat to be able to learn s- some of the local growers and suppliers in the area that way. This interest in food systems led him to a position at Chartwells, a K-12 nutrition strategy company working with the local schools. It's such a beast of a system trying to figure out how to, how to make food delicious and, and healthy and affordable for, for kids. When we first got there, it was just a couple small steps to improve, I think, improve some of the food was we're doing things like uh, taking the fryers out of the schools. The the company that was there before was really not so concerned with uh, what they call a reimbursable meal. They were just selling a la carte items. Um, the district wanted to change that, so they wanted to sell more of a meal and, and, and incentivize us by doing that as opposed to doing the a la carte so, so the students um, would have a full meal, not just uh, you know chicken wings or, or french fries. Nowadays, Chef McGuire is most interested in the concept of gastro-diplomacy. It's practiced by groups like the Bronx's Ghetto Gastro, who use the borough's food culture to foster dialogue along social, economic, or geographic borders. Gastro-diplomacy can be boiled down to that old saying, the easiest way to someone's heart is through their stomach. It can be pretty simple, though. Um, it's not... It could be as, as, as much as, uh, you know, having a group of people um, coming to the executive mansion, for example, that... Uh, are there for a meeting and and maybe they are fed a a, a nice meal uh, and it kind of opens their mind a little bit and and, and it might open them up a little bit more to uh, a better conversation and uh, I'm, I'm all for that. That was producer Josephine McRobbie. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue. Enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rash Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Beacon Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838.
Fermentation and fermented foods continue to be hot topics all over the food world. From high-end chefs creating specialized fermented pickles to homesteaders putting up large crockfuls of sauerkraut. And you might be hearing stories about possible health benefits from eating yogurt every day or drinking kombucha every chance you get. Fermentation is on the lips in more ways than one. My name is Andrew Flax. I'm an anthropologist at Purdue University, where I'm an assistant professor. Andrew Flax spoke with Kane Ferguson of the IU Food Institute and myself this fall when he visited the Indiana University campus for a talk on fermentation and the microbiome. He and his colleague Joseph Orkin are approaching the topic from more than one angle. And for them, getting to this topic was an interesting journey in itself. So most of the work that I have done so far has been looking at how people learn about their environment and use agricultural knowledge and use new technologies to shape landscapes and how all of that fits together into traditional ecological knowledge and how that knowledge and practice is structured by the political economy and these larger forces that determine who does what, where, and when and the ecological consequences of that. For Andrew, this meant studying cotton farmers in South India, who were facing an agricultural crisis that led to extremely high rates of farmers committing suicide. The response to the crisis included farmers shifting their growing practices to either genetically modified crops or to organic farming. Andrew Flax studied the processes of farmers gaining knowledge about various growing methods choosing growing methods and particular seeds, and the effect of these choices on the agricultural landscape. I'm starting to realize with this new research that's coming out on the microbiome that we do the same things every time we make food and every time we eat that food. We're having the same processes of knowledge and technology and becoming every time we make something like a fermented food and every time we eat it, we're actually changing the landscapes inside of ourselves, these microbial landscapes that we all have, that I have, that you have, and ours are a little bit different based on the diets uh, and the places where we grew up. The microbiome is this complicated assemblage of bacteria and viruses and fungi and microscopic uh, multicellular creatures that exist within all of us and exist within every animal and we're starting to realize exist between plants as well, plants and fungi. And these trillions of little beings help us to do everything in our daily lives from digest our food to help our uh, immune systems function, to help our bodies transmit signals, to helping plants and fungi transmit signals to each other as well. So they're really involved in every aspect of life as we know it. They're just unseen. This is just this invisible world that we're creating with the foods that we eat and the things that we do. I started thinking about this with some of the work that I do in India where every day, every meal will include at least one bowl of yogurt that has sat out uh, and is kick-started by yesterday's yogurt. And this is what you eat to finish off your meal and to be healthy, usually at the end of the day. I myself grew up with my grandmother's kosher dill pickles, which were harvested from the garden lightly kind of washed and then thrown in with a mix of spices and oak leaves to ferment and become delicious and sour. When you put all of these vegetables together, say in the pickle example, and you submerge them in salt, you're essentially creating, you're doing what a farmer would do because you're creating a landscape. 
just on this microbial level. You're creating conditions where certain species will do well and certain species will not do well, except that instead of like chickens and pigs and cotton, we're talking about lactic acid producing bacteria. Salt turns out to be, and heat turn out to be things that produce tastes that we humans like very much. So in the case of the pickles, putting in that salt creates an environment where some bacteria don't survive very well and others thrive. Some of those that thrive are lactic acid producing bacteria. That lactic acid, it tastes good to us, but it also in combination with the salt kills off any bacteria that might be kind of harmful to us. So this is a way that many, many cultures around the world for generations have used to preserve food in the absence of refrigeration, which is a fairly new technology. This bacteria then goes on to kill off any of these things which might be harmful. And over time, that acid intensifies until we've got a much reduced ecosystem on our microbial level. And we're left with really only these things that taste good and happen to be relatively helpful for us. Uh, when we, so my main research is in food and agriculture and these questions of how do we shape the environment? How does the environment shape us? Which are classic anthropology questions and anthropologists have been looking at this for a long time, including here uh, at IU. In my research on genetically modified crops and organic agriculture in India, the questions were all about how do we make that decision of which seed to plant? And there's lots of uh, larger forces that go into this seemingly small decision that then determines everything about your agriculture and the kind of landscapes that you live in. On the microbiome project, it's that same kind of combination of knowledge and practice and heritage within the larger just political and economic day-to-day -day that we live in that drew me to that same research because not only are you creating a landscape every time you make pickles or sauerkraut or yogurt, but it's becoming increasingly clear that when you eat all of that stuff, you're very rapidly and reliably reshaping the microbial ecology inside of you in ways that might and this very new project, so we don't know for sure, but in ways that might be extremely uh, beneficial for human health and for well-being, in addition to being delicious, in addition to helping us interact with our heritage and connect with our roots. Myself and my colleague, Joseph Orkin, who's at the University of Calgary, who's a geneticist, uh, and he does a different side of this project with me. Together, we traveled down to Liberty, Tennessee, and we got to meet a major figure in fermentation revivalism, which is this guy, Sandor Katz. And this speaks to what we think is kind of new and interesting about this project and this approach to fermentation, where we're taking uh, a cultural investigation of these topics, which is my job. So I'm a cultural anthropologist, and I interview people, and I participate and observe in uh, different kinds of practices to learn more about them and to learn how practices become embodied. This is all very important if we want to ask about knowledge. And what Joe Orkin does is, as a geneticist, while I was interviewing people about their histories of fermentation and some of these heritage recipes and how they got into this and observing how we made these things, uh, Joe was taking um, samples of all of these different pots of fermented foods and vegetables and brines and preserving them in liquid nitrogen so that we could then see what sorts of influences ultimately came together to create this microbial landscape, which we would then be able to genetically measure using uh, metagenomic sampling techniques. If we're really interested in how this microbial landscape in our food shapes the microbial landscape within us, there needs to be some kind of biological sampling. 
So I mentioned that my job is talking to people and eating food and hanging out and having a good time with other people. Uh, Joe's job, in part, was to uh, collect people's stool samples every day so that we could then essentially have a real-time, day-wise understanding of how this microbial community and this fermented food that I'm eating then comes out in my stool the next day and how much of that potentially probiotic landscape survived through the gut system, we would then be able to measure through, again, metagenomic sampling later in the laboratory. So we're trying to combine all of this, all of these different angles through interviewing and learning these techniques and seeing what's alive in the fermented foods and then seeing what's alive in people's stools to understand really fundamentally how culture shapes our health. My understanding of this comes out of my reading of the medical literature. Now, most medical uh, findings are done through the process of clinical trials, and clinical trials are great. They're a fantastic way to understand how one specific input, whether it's a, a, com a chemical compound or a specific bacterium in this microbiome case or a specific process, is going to have an effect because we can cancel out all of these other confounds and variables. So it's really helpful if we want to say with certainty like X compound has this effect on health. Um, so most of the research on fermentation and fermented food health benefits comes from clinical research like that. And that's how we know that there are some benefits for the ability to digest lots of different kinds of foods and digest them better. That's how we know that there are links between certain kinds of lactic acid producing bacteria and a reduction in depression and anxiety. That's how we know that there are links between some of these fermented foods and what may be anti-cancer agents, agents that will, uh, in general, improve the functioning of our metabolism and also our autoimmune systems. And that's really important work uh, being done by people who are not me and are not uh, Joseph Orkin. Because what we're looking at is more of the real life example. Because Diet is very complicated and really tricky to study. These kinds of nutritional studies, um, which is the best work that we have, or even self-reported data, that's, it's difficult to make great conclusions about that because people aren't very good at remembering this information. And people in general aren't very good at keeping track of that kind of thing. If we really want to understand how this dietary input of fermented foods has an impact and what kind of impact it has. We want to qualify that impact. We really have to be there in the moment with people, and that's doing anthropology. So that's not going to happen in the same way in a clinical trial. It doesn't reflect reality in the same ways that this more participatory approach does. In a clinical trial, confounds are bad. In, in the scientific method, what you're really trying to do is break down a problem into a uh, yes or no kind of answer. Yes, I can say with certainty this variable, which is not being influenced by any other outsider variables, has an impact on the thing that I'm trying to study. If there's a confound, then other outside forces are coming in and disturbing that really neat interaction that we want to study between variable and outcome. And so if these outside things come in, then we can't say for certainty, yeah, that's the variable that's really causing the impact that we're seeing. In anthropology, confounds are life. And so that's what we're trying to do uh, with this project. And so we're able to say different kinds of things, and this is a very new project. And certainly we're very grateful to all this work that's giving us leads and, and potentialities to follow. 
Am I correct in understanding that you got into the fermentation because of spending time in India, not because of necessarily the research you were doing, but because of the diet and lifestyle that you were exposed to? Yes. Academically, I became interested in fermentation uh, in this way because of the kinds of local food practices that I was seeing. You eat a chicken that is one of these local heirloom chickens. In, in Telugu, the word would be a desi chicken. This is one of these like country chickens. And you eat it with chilies and tomatoes that were grown right in that land. And you uh, eat it with the rice that was grown in the paddy that's right next to the field. You get to taste that area. You never get better home-cooked meals uh, than in places where there's a vibrant agricultural life. As to the actual fermentation project, if I were being completely honest, this project began uh, in conversations with uh, Joseph Orkin and myself at our local deli. As both of us were finishing up our uh, PhD dissertations at Washington University in St. Louis, we would often go to uh, Pratzel's Deli in St. Louis uh, and have a sandwich and discuss these things that we were working on. Joe was sequencing the stools uh, of free-ranging gibbons in Yunnan, China, to try and understand conservation from this genetic perspective. I was trying to make sense of agricultural knowledge and seeing how people shape landscapes around them. And we kept finding ourselves converging on this idea of landscapes big and small and the ways that we kind of shape ourselves and we are shaped by the environment. Not just my Indian farmers, not just Joe's uh, free-ranging gibbons, but also ourselves every time we were eating these pickles, which we knew uh, were just teeming with lots of delicious lactobacillus uh, bacterium. And we started to wonder what sorts of effects these have because I had grown up hearing from my grandmother all of these stories about how good pickle juice is for you and it's restorative. Um, this is something I've confirmed with many people of Slavic heritage, uh, that pickles and ferments are things that you do to keep strong. I heard the exact same logic in uh, South India where I was given this locally produced um, buffalo milk yogurt, which is a higher fat than cow milk. It's 8% and man, is it delicious. And I was told that this was something that was going to keep me well because it was imparting all of these good qualities onto me. Uh, these were things that Joe was finding in his research in um, pickled vegetables throughout southern China. And so being anthropologists, we really wanted to tie all of this together and to figure out, well, what of this can we measure? What of this has some kind of influence? How do we study the influence of heritage and taste on our health and well-being? And this just seemed like a great way to tie all of these things together. One of the things that I really want to just emphasize here in all of these studies is that it's really important to try and understand these really complex issues, whether it's something that is immediately very serious like agrarian crisis and suicide and the future of agriculture. I mean, whether it should be genetically modified crops or organics or something in between. And these things that might seem a little more frivolous, like how do we make the world's best sauerkraut? It's very important to understand these from as many different perspectives as possible uh, through this combination of um, mathematical tools that we have at our disposal. So surveys and spatial information and genetic sequencing 
but to make sure that that's always in service of the larger, bigger questions, which are things that we get through more qualitative approaches, talking with people, participating, observing, becoming parts of communities, uh, and trying to tell their story as well as we can. It's great because I think I've really lucked out on the fermentation project, um, you know, where I'm talking with people and eating food and my, my poor geneticist colleague is going around hitting up people for their poop. I feel like I really lucked out on this one. You can find out more about Andrew Flax, his colleague Joseph Orkin, their current research on fermentation and the microbiome, and their previous projects. We've got links on our website, eartheats.org. Susan Mintert of the Indiana Home Cooks podcast puts an Italian spin on a classic braised pot roast. Here's Susan. What goes into this pot roast is a chuck roast, some diced tomatoes, uh, onions, and red pepper. And again, this is just a rough chop. We want them to be still in pretty good sized chunks. And I also have a couple cloves of fresh garlic, so I'm just going to give those a rough chop also, just to break them down a little bit. So now I have my chuck roast. I'm going to give it a little seasoning of salt and pepper before I put it into the uh, hot pot on the stove. And then I have my uh, Dutch oven here. It's ready, and I'm going to add a good drizzle of olive oil. And now in goes our pot roast just to give it a nice sear before we add everything else to the pot. Just three to four minutes per side is what we need here. I'm going to pull this out of my Dutch oven and to the pot. Now I'm going to add my liquid ingredients, which are a half cup of beef broth and a half cup of red wine. Putting those in to just deglaze the pot and get all of the bits that stuck to the bottom. That's flavor that we want to get back into the dish. I'm putting the roast back in carefully, and then I'm going to transfer my vegetables. That's going to go right in on top of the roast, and we will add in at this point now a can of diced tomatoes and a can of tomato paste, and then finally our seasoning, salt and pepper, dried thyme, and some dried oregano, probably a good teaspoon of each, and another uh, good couple teaspoons of some dried basil. So everything's in the pot. I'm gonna pop this into the oven, and I'm going to just let this cook away in the oven at 325, and it's gonna need a good two hours, three hours maybe. You wanna give it plenty of time so that it does have that chance to uh, really break down and get fork tender. Let the roast set for 15 minutes or so out of the oven. Serve over pasta or polenta with a garnish of chopped fresh parsley and Parmesan cheese. This recipe is at eartheats.org. Find more from Susan Mintert at indianahomecooks.com. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. 
Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Ryan McGuire, Andrew Flax, and Susan Mentert. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio.com.